Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, when you turn on the news today, it's very clear that we live in a world that is definitely lost, a world that is full of sin, a world that is full of racism, hatred, violence. It's just kind of everywhere that we look these days. And, you know, ultimately, we live in a world that desperately needs the gospel. We live in a world that desperately needs Jesus. You know, something we need to understand as Christians is it's only Jesus who can ultimately change the heart of people. It's only Jesus who can change sinners from, you know, being racist or being violent or or these things that we're seeing that's permeating our culture. It's Jesus who is the ultimate answer. You know, many people are looking to politicians, to world leaders, to even celebrities to to fix the problem in our world. But, But really, the ultimate problem that we face is a problem of sin. And the only one who can fix the sin problem is the one who paid the price for our sin on the cross, and that is Jesus Christ. This world is enslaved in their sin, and the only way to overcome that, the only way to be set free from that, the only way to be forgiven of their sin is to come and accept Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life to pay for the sin of the world. Believing in Jesus is the ultimate answer to the problems in our culture, because when someone accepts Christ, they change. And because they change, the culture starts to change. Jesus is the cure for the problem of sin in our world that's destroying our culture. And the gospel message is the message that tells people you have a sin problem and there's only one cure, and that is Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's on us as believers in Christ to go and deliver that message. We've been called to share with this world the truth of what Jesus has done. Now, considering that reality, that it's only through people believing in Jesus that the sin problems in this world will change, that it's only through people believing in Jesus that they personally will change, that their sin will be something that they can start to overcome. Considering that reality, I have a very important question that I want you to ponder this morning. What are you willing to go through, to suffer, to lose for the sake of reaching this lost and sinful world for Christ? Or let me pose this question another way. Are there things you're not willing to go through? Are there things you're not willing to suffer? Are there things you're not willing to lose in order to reach this lost and sinful world for Christ? Since Jesus is what this lost and sinful world needs in order to change and be forgiven of their sins, what are you willing to endure in order to get that message and that love to them? Here in Acts chapter 14, we're going to see the events surrounding the end of the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas have embarked on. And we're going to see that they go through a lot of difficulty. We've already seen many things that they've already encountered that have been difficult, but they're going to have difficulty. They're going to suffer. They're going to go through loss. But you know what? They're going to continue to minister. They're going to continue to reach people who are lost because of their love for God and their love for these people. 
And so as we look at the end of this first missionary journey, as we see that all that Paul and Barnabas go through, all that they suffer, all that they lose for the sake of reaching the lost with the gospel, I want you to be asking yourself the question, are there things I'm not willing to go through? Are there things I'm not willing to suffer? Are there things I'm not willing to lose in order to reach lost and sinful people for Christ? And if the answer is, there are. There are things you're not willing to lose, suffer, things you're not willing to go through. We're going to end with a time just to ask God to change our hearts. Ask God to work in us. Ask God to give us His love for the lost. At the end of Acts chapter 13, we saw Paul and Barnabas, they got run out of Antioch. Seems like every place they're going, they're getting run out of it. They leave Antioch and they go to the city of Iconium. And as we come to Acts chapter 14 this morning, Iconium is where we're going to see Paul and Barnabas starting out. And so let's see what happens. They've just come there uh, and let's see how they are received and their message, whether it is received or not. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 1, says this. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region. Well, as we've seen this regular pattern, Paul and Barnabas, they get to a new place. Usually the first place they go to is the synagogue. And as they enter the synagogue, the first message that they proclaim is the most important message that there is, the gospel message, the one message that can take someone from eternal life in hell to eternal life in heaven, something that can take someone from living a life of sin to be forgiven of that. And so they share the gospel. You know, Greg Laurie, who's a, a great evangelist and pastor within the Calvary Chapel movement, he, he wrote this about the gospel that I found uh, very encouraging. He says, We often underestimate the raw power of the gospel in reaching even the most hardened hearts. We think that we need to add to it, dress it up, make it ultra-contemporary, gloss it over, or even complicate it. But there is distinct power in the simple message of the life words, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Never underestimate its appeal. Never be ashamed of its simplicity. Never add to it or take away from it. Just proclaim it. And then stand back and watch what God will do. This is exactly what we see Paul and Barnabas doing regularly as they go from place to place. They understand the power of the simple gospel message of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross and that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And they proclaim that message and they stand back and they watch what God does in the hearts and lives of individuals who hear that message. And just like with the last city, many Jews and Gentiles they hear the gospel and they believe in it. They believe in Jesus. So the missionary efforts in this city start off well. But as we've seen so far as Paul goes to different places and they go to different areas, it starts off well. People receive the gospel. Then usually things turn for the worse. Whenever God is greatly moving in people's lives, Satan is usually there to try and attack and destroy. And, and this is what we see here in Iconium. And often Satan uses 
unbelieving people. That's kind of the, the, the source that he often uses to come against us, and that's what we're going to see here. And so verse 2, we're told, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. So we have Jews and Gentiles that did believe in the gospel, but there's a group of Jews that did not accept it, did not believe in it. And that group, we're told, poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul, against Barnabas, and those who have just accepted the gospel there in this city. Now, this Greek word translated poison is not speaking of some kind of deadly toxin or pill that poisoned the Gentiles' mind. They didn't take some kind of drug. The word means to embitter and render evil effect. So the Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles by embittering them, by affecting them with their evil thoughts towards those who believed in Jesus. And you know, this is so often how Satan works. He loves to poison people's minds against those who believe in Christ. He loves to push that feeling that he has, that hatred, that embitterment towards believers he, he likes to, to push that on others. And, and we see that in our culture, how our culture is becoming more and more against and embittered towards and hating those who believe in Jesus and follow his word. You know, I'm sure some of you have experienced people who have been bitter against you, have hated you just because you believe in Jesus, just because you're a follower of Jesus. Perhaps it's family members. Perhaps it's a co-worker, perhaps it's a, a neighbor, but you've encountered people that just don't like you because you love Jesus. And maybe you wonder, why is it? Why is it that they're so bitter? Why is it they're so angry? What is it I've done? Well, in many cases, you've just followed Jesus. And Satan loves to influence people and push his bitter hatefulness towards believers on them. And I encourage you, if you have someone like that in your life, you're saying, yeah, I know a few people that are like that to me. I want to encourage you with something. If someone hates you or they're bitter to you because you believe in Jesus, and let me emphasize that, because there are times when people hate you or are embittered towards you because you've sinned against them. And that's a whole different area. It's a whole different thing. If you're sinning against someone, then you know that's a different reason for why they hate you or why they're upset with you or why they're embittered to you. But if they just hate you and are embittered to you because you believe in Jesus then I would encourage you, spend a lot of time praying for that person. And specifically be praying that the Lord would, if Satan is attacking them and, and pushing this on them, that God would just protect them from that, but that you would spend regular time just praying for those individuals. So these unbelieving Jews, they poison the mind of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas uh, and those who have believed in Jesus there in that city. And there's this bitterness and these evil thoughts that are now present there. And um, so not only are the Jews now coming against Paul and Barnabas, but now we have this group of Gentiles there in the city that also are coming against them. And let's see how Paul and Barnabas respond to this new persecution. Verse three says this. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, I want you to know, on this missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas have encountered a lot of difficulty, a lot of struggles, a lot of persecution. People have regularly tried to stop them from sharing the gospel, stop them from reaching people for Christ. And each time we see Paul and Barnabas respond with boldness respond by withstanding these attacks and continuing to move forward to reach people 
for Christ. And that's exactly what we see here as well. In the midst of this persecution from unbelieving Jews and and these Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas, were told, spoke boldly in the Lord, bore witness to the word of his grace, and notice God enabled them to do signs and wonders. And so now God's doing miracles through these guys. But something I want you to note that we're told that's very important. In the midst of this persecution, notice that Paul and Barnabas were told, stayed in that city for a long time. Think about that for a moment, because oftentimes when persecution comes, we want to be in the place of persecution for the shortest time possible. We just want to quickly get away from persecution. We want to quickly get away from problems. You know, I've never met someone who just got done going through some persecution and they said, you know, I wish that persecution would have lasted just a little bit longer. It ended too quickly. It would have been so much nicer to have it for another month or another year. I've never encountered someone like that. Usually our mindset is we want this done now. We don't want to last another day or another month or another year. We want to get through the persecution as quickly as possible. Because of that, we often have a tendency to run from persecution. We often have a tendency to do everything we can to get away from it. But I want you to know here, Paul and Barnabas, they're being persecuted. They're in a city that doesn't want them there, that's trying to run them out of there. And we're told that in the midst of all that, they stay there a long time. They put themselves in a place where there is persecution. They choose to stay in that place and minister a long time. And they did it because they had a love for the people in that city. I mean, the reality is no one likes to be persecuted. But when we have a love for God and a love for a people, we are now enabled to willingly choose to go through persecution, to go through difficulty in order to reach those people for Christ. You know, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we call it the the love chapter because it, it shares so many things about love. And in that chapter, Paul defines love for us. And the first thing he tells us is love is patient or more accurately translated long suffering. You know, that's kind of the, the, the definition of love that oftentimes we really don't like. We like a lot of the other things. You know, it's kind. You know, there's other stuff. It's gentle. There's a nice bit. But long suffering is the aspect of love. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I struggle with. When you love someone, you're willing to suffer long with them. But it goes against what we like. We like to suffer short. We like to suffer for as little time as possible. We don't want to suffer long. But love brings us to that place where we're willing to suffer long with people. You're willing to go through hardships. You're willing to go through persecution when you love them. This is what we see with Paul and Barnabas. Their love for God, their love for believers, their love for the lost is what made them willing to suffer long with these people in Iconium who were persecuting them. They stayed a long time in the midst of persecution, ultimately because of their love. And this is a great example for us. Our love for God, for other believers and the lost should ultimately cause us to be willing to suffer long for them. Our love for God should should make us want to be willing to say, you know, I'm going to stay. I'm going to keep pouring in. I'm going to keep reaching out. I'm going to keep witnessing. I know it's difficult. I know they're doing these things. I know it's hard. I know the persecution's coming, but I love them. 
And that's what drives me forward. That's what keeps me here. That's what keeps me going. Part of loving people is a willingness to suffer along with them. And if we're not willing to suffer along with people, then we need to ask God for more of his love. Because you know what? The Bible tells us God is love. Not that he's just loving, but that's what he is. That's part of his nature. He is love. We're also told because love is part of the definition, long suffering. That's another thing that God is as well. Second Peter three, nine tells us the Lord is long suffering towards us. Thank goodness. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God towards this world. He is long suffering with everyone. Desiring that all would come to repentance. Desiring that all would believe in Him. You know, that is the the challenge that we have. Are we going to be like the Lord in that? Are we going to have that heart as well? Well, as Paul and Barnabas minister in Iconium, we're told in verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and parts with the apostles. So this interesting thing happens here that they're making quite an impact on the city. Part of the city is siding with them. Part of the city is accepting Christ. Part of the city is is ready to to see God do these things. But then you have the other part of the city that's completely against them. So there's this division. There are those who are against Paul and Barnabas and the work of God, and there are those who are for it. Half the city wants all these things to stop. Half the city wants these things to continue. Well, the half of the city that's against Paul and Barnabas, they're now going to act. They're now going to do something. And I want you to notice what it is in verses 5 and 6. We're told this. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. So the half of the city that once rid of Paul and Barnabas, they're not just messing around. They're serious. Notice what we're told. They are attempting to violently abuse and stone them. When you stone someone, there's only one purpose for that is to kill them. That was their purpose. They wanted to get Paul and Barnabas and they wanted to stone them to death. Well, we're told that Paul and Barnabas, they come aware of this plan. They know what's happening and they flee to Lystra. Now, I think it's important to note here, Paul and Barnabas, we've already said, they stayed a long time in Iconium, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty. But when it came to the point where they were seeking to kill them, where they were seeking to stone them, at that point in time, they said, all right, now it's time to leave. Now it's time to go from Iconium and we're going to leave to Lystra. This shows that Paul and Barnabas didn't rush headlong toward martyrdom. They did what they could to preserve their lives. They were willing to stay. They were willing to suffer persecution. But ultimately, when it came to, all right, our life's on the line here. They're going to kill us. Well, we're going to move to somewhere else so we can continue ministering for the Lord. You know, many believers are killed for their faith, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. But there are believers like Paul and Barnabas. They find out that this is going to happen. They have the capacity to get away from it or stop it. And it's fine to choose to do that. It's not like, oh, no, you, know, you can't go away from these things. You know, these Paul and Barnabas, they protect themselves. There's nothing wrong with that to stay alive, uh, continue to minister for the Lord. Uh, and so they leave Iconium and now they come to Lystra and Derby and cities of Lyconia uh, and to the surrounding region. And as they travel, the first place they come to is 
Lystra. So let's see what happens there and how the people respond to their message. Verse 7 says this. And when they were preaching the gospel there, and in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. So Paul and Barnabas, they come to Lystra. And I want you to note they don't go to a synagogue because most likely there wasn't one in Lystra. Lystra is a very pagan place. Uh, And so they just start preaching the gospel there. And they come across this man who is without strength in his feet. He's been a cripple since he was born. And Paul, he hears Paul speaking. He hears the gospel being proclaimed. And we're told that Paul looked at him intently and saw that he had the faith to be healed. Now, now, how could Paul see that? How could Paul see, oh, you have enough faith to be healed? Well, it's most likely that the Holy Spirit gave Paul the gift of discernment or knowledge that, hey, this, this man is ready to receive the gospel, to receive this healing. And so Paul comes up to him and he says, stand up straight on your feet. And the crippled man is healed right there. He stands up, he starts leaping around, and everybody there is now watching this guy who's been crippled his whole life completely healed. Well, let's see how they respond. Quite a different response than what we've seen in other cities. Verse 11. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice to the multitudes. So the people, they see this miraculous thing happen. They see Paul speak to this man who's been crippled since he was a baby, and he stands up and he's jumping around, and this healing takes place, and they're blown away by it. And they respond by raising their voice and saying in their own language, the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So these people in Lystra see this amazing miracle happen before their eyes, but notice their view of God hasn't changed. Therefore, it seemed logical to them to consider Barnabas and Saul or Paul as the gods that they were familiar with. Zeus, they had a temple there worshiping Zeus. Zeus was the main god they worshiped, so it was simple to say, well, this must be Zeus who's done this. So, you know, they called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes because Hermes was uh, the messenger of Zeus. And they think, well, Paul, you're the one talking all the time. And so you must be the messenger. You must be Hermes and Barnabas, you must be Zeus. And so they start worshiping them as Zeus and Hermes. Now in Greek mythology, it was common for the gods to come to earth in human form. And, And I found interesting as I was studying this, that historians tell us that the people in Lystra had a legend That once Zeus and Hermes had visited their land disguised as mortals, and only this one older couple gave them any hospitality. And so they wiped out everybody else. They killed them all except for that older couple. And there was this thing of, hey, if they ever come back, we better receive them or else. And so kind of interesting if that was actually happening at that time, that no wonder they're so quick to honor Paul and Barnabas as gods. But I'm sure that Paul and Barnabas did not speak the Lyconian language. And so when they're shouting out, hey, the gods have come down in the likeness of men, they probably don't know what's happening. These guys are just speaking gibberish to them and they're just shouting and screaming and they're thinking, okay, what's going on? But they're about to figure it out. 
Because the priests of this temple in Zeus are bringing sacrifices to them, and they're realizing, oh, wait a second. You guys think we're gods. You guys are starting to worship us. And now listen to how they respond when they realize that this group of people wants to worship them as gods. Starting in verse 14, it says this. But when the apostles Barnabas heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? When Paul and Barnabas hear that the priests of Zeus are coming to sacrifice to them, to worship them, to, to present these things to them like their gods, we're told that they tear their clothes. Now, they probably tore their clothes for two different reasons. First of all, maybe just to show we're completely human, just like you guys are, we're not gods. But probably more uh, importantly, this was an instinctive reaction from Jews when it came to blasphemy. Remember, even when they accused Jesus of blasphemy, what did they all do? They tear their clothes. Whenever that happened in that culture, that was a way to, to demonstrate how horrible this was, because this was one of the most severe sins that you could commit. And being called a god, that was blasphemous. And so they're thinking, they tear their clothes. You guys, you know, this is not something that can happen, that you can believe that we are the one true God, because we definitely are not. And so they tear their clothes and they run into this crowd who's bringing all these sacrifices and things, and, and they have a message for this group of people. Notice what they say in verse 15 through 18. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us his reign from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with fruit, food, sorry, and gladness. So the first part of Paul's message as he runs in there and saying, hey guys, we're just men like you. And then he shares something very important from them, well, to them. He says, you know what? You need to turn away from these useless things to the living God. You need to turn away from worshiping these useless false gods, these idols that do nothing because they're not true. You need to turn from them and turn to the true and living God. You see, Jesus couldn't just be added to their pagan ways. He needed to replace their pagan ways. They have to stop worshiping false gods and start worshiping the true God. They couldn't just say, oh, another God to add to all these gods that we worship? Sure, we'll worship Jesus as well. No, no, you have to stop that. You have to turn away from that pagan idol worship and you have to turn to the one true God. You know, when sharing Jesus with people, this is a very important part of the message. You've got to turn away from the useless things that you've been living for, that you've been worshiping. And you need to turn to the one true God, Jesus Christ. That might be a worship of themselves. It might be a worship of money. It might be a worship of whoever, whatever. The reality is you've got to turn away from your sinful past life and you have to now turn to Jesus and accept him the one who can save you from your sin. You know what we call that? We call that repentance. Repentance is to turn away from your sin. That's the difference from being sorry. Sorry is just a feeling, an emotion. Oh, I'm sorry I did it, or I'm sorry I got caught. Repentance is I'm willing to now turn from that. And once you turn from your sin, you need to turn to Jesus Christ and accept what he has done for you. Well, Paul goes on to explain who the true living God is. Hey, you guys need to turn away from your useless idols and to the true living God. He's the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. 
Paul calls the people in Lystra to consider the real God, the God who made everything that they could see. He's not the one useless imaginary Greek God. He's the true God. And he goes on to say, he did not leave himself without witness and that he gave, he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Paul mentions here, hey, God shared things that are a witness of who he is. And notice he lists, he gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons. He fills our heart with food and gladness. Now, these would have been things that they would have uh, said, well, this was what Zeus does for us. This is what Zeus brings to us. And Paul said, no, no, no. This is the one true God who offers these things to you. Now, notice that Paul does not preach to his pagan people the same way he preached to Jews who were acquainted with the Judaism in the Old Testament. Because normally he goes into the synagogue and he has people who are familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with the God of the Bible, and he preaches to them a very different way than he does with this group because this group has no concept of the Bible, has no concept of things. So he starts with something a little bit different. Instead, he appeals, instead of the Bible, he starts with the natural revelation of God in creation. All the people could see, hey, the, the one who created all that you see, that is the true God. He starts with this natural revelation to them. You know, Romans 1.20, Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. What this is saying is that God has clearly revealed himself in his creation. His creation reveals his invisible attributes. It reveals his Godhead. It reveals his power. It reveals that there's a creator. And so everyone who sees creation, they're without excuse, ultimately saying that no one can say, well, I didn't know there was a God. Well, actually, you do, because in his creation, he's revealed that he exists. It's all around you. When you stand before him, he's going to hold you accountable to the fact that you should have known there was a creator because of the creation that is here. And so Paul starts with this natural revelation using nature to say, hey, it all points to a creator. Now, that only lets you know that there is a God. It doesn't let you know who he is. That's the natural or general revelation. Then there's the specific revelation that we have in the Bible, which reveals who God is, which reveals his plan for mankind, which reveals what he's done for us. But Paul starts with the natural. All right, you guys have no concept of the Bible, so we're going to start with what you do have a concept of, creation, nature. And I'm going to share this is the God who's created these things. And he wants to move, obviously, to more specific things like what we see in the Bible, but he actually isn't even going to get a chance to do that because notice in verse 18 what happens. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So Paul's sharing with them. He's trying to reach them. He's trying to preach to them. And he wants them to stop trying to worship him. Hey, we're not gods. Let me tell you about the one who truly is God. And they're just like ignoring that. No, we're going to keep trying to worship you. And so the problem is getting bad, but it's about to get worse. Let's see what happens in verse 19 and 20. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Now, if you remember at the end of chapter 13, we saw what happened in Antioch. The unbelieving Jews there, the prominent men of the city, they ran Paul and Barnabas out of Antioch. At the beginning of chapter 14, we see what happens in Iconium. They want to stone him. They want to kill him. But Paul and Barnabas find out about it and they leave and they go to Lystra. 
Well, guess what? This group follows them. They come there. They arrive. Their plan has always been, we want these guys dead. And they come to this group of people who's about to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And notice something interesting. They're able to convince this crowd who thinks Paul and Barnabas are gods to kill them, stone them. They grab Paul and they stone him. Now, I find that interesting because this crowd goes from worship to war, from sacrifice to stoning, from love to hate like that. And I want to bring that up because so often we are seeking the approval of the crowd and we need to recognize the crowd is so very fickle. They change their mind so often. One minute they're worshiping you. The next minute they're wanting to stone you. The only one that we should seek the approval of ultimately is God, the one who never changes. That's the approval that should be the one that we're desiring, the one that we're living for. And if you're living for the approval of people, well, you're going to be in for a rough time because you're going to find out, as Paul and Barnabas did, it changes quick. Oh, Jesus, save now, save now. A week later, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, how quickly the crowds change. But notice what happens These guys stone Paul. They drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. They grab a bunch of stones. I mean, this would be a horrible way to die. And his people are just hammering you with stones. And they think he's dead. He's probably not moving anymore. And so they drag his limpless body out of the city and just kind of toss him out there thinking, all right, he's dead. We've We've dealt with that. But now notice what happens in verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. So the disciples gathered around probably thinking as well, he's dead. This is horrible. What's happened? And then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're looking at this lifeless body and then boom, he stands up. Now, there are commentators who believe that Paul literally was killed, that he was stoned to death. Uh, One of the reasons they believe that is because stoning was a pretty effective method of execution uh, and that they would have probably known that but whether he was stoned to death and literally the miracle was God raised him up from the dead or he was just stoned to the point of almost death and God miraculously healed him either way there's an insane miracle that's happening here but that's not what's most significant to me what's most significant to me is what Paul does and I want you to try to put yourself in his shoes right now his situation you have just been through a horrific event A angry mob of people who once you dead has picked up stones and they are hammering you with stones until you're either unconscious or maybe you actually die. But let's just say, you know, he's just almost dead. They're beating you with those stones. You're drug out into the outer parts of the city and all of a sudden you're revived. God heals you. You get up. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do at that moment? What would be your feelings towards those who had just done this horrible thing to you. Now, I'm sure most of us would not go back into the city to the same people who just did that. We think, okay, this is a sign to move on, to get away from these people, to get out of here. Obviously, they don't want this message. They've shown that really clearly with their actions. But notice what we're told Paul does. He rose up and went back into the city. Paul's healed. He doesn't flee the city that stoned him. Instead, he immediately goes back into it. What boldness he has and what an amazing love for these people that just tried to kill him or perhaps even did. 
You know, if you were on a missionary journey and you were stoned to the point where the people thought you were dead, then God miraculously healed you. I think for most of us, we would say, you know what? I think this is time to end this missionary journey. I think it's time for us to go home. This is a good time to, to you know, go and back to Antioch and reflect upon this. You know, this is a good sign. This is time to end it. Paul and Barnabas didn't give up. They just kept on ministering. And the crazy thing is they actually go back into that city. They go back to those people. I want you to think about that question that I posed at the beginning of this message. Are there things you're not willing to go through? You're not willing to suffer? You're not willing to lose for the sake of reaching this lost world for Christ? You know, as I looked at this and I think, you know, would I be willing to be stoned and get back up and minister to those people? And if I'm honest, probably no. And I think, okay, well, there's something I'm not willing to suffer. There's something I'm not willing to